Hello and welcome to the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I'm Laura Hilliger. And I'm Doug Belshaw. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded, so you can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com forward slash we are open. So today we're talking to Emily Gologoski, a writer and researcher and a former colleague of both of ours. Um, Emily is currently head of research at Charter, which is an organization with a mission to transform every workplace and to catalyze a new era of dynamic organizations where all workers thrive, which sounds quite related to co-ops to us anyway. So welcome, Emily. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and to be in conversation with you, Laura and Doug. Um, Past work at Mozilla Foundation introduced me to both of your smarts, and I just love what you're doing with the show. I also have to give a shout. There is an amazing email newsletter called Dense Discovery. And this is how Laura and I sort of reconnected, um, which is very much about the themes that we're going to talk about today, about the attention economy um, and, I think, productive, progressive ways forward. I think all three of us have been featured in Dense Discovery now. Really? It's an amazing. Kai is doing really wonderful work. (laughs) Yeah, and it was. So that is actually the common thread. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, Kai is the common thread, not Mozilla. Uh, well, we always start our podcast uh, by asking whatever guest we have, whomever happens to be there, about their favorite book. So, Emily, do you want to tell us a little bit about your favorite book at the moment? Yes, I am listening to Trisha Hersey's Rest is Resistance. So, Trisha created the NAP ministry here in the U.S., and Pathetically, it has taken me about seven months to get around to spending time with this book. And I'm listening to the audiobook, which just hearing the texture of her voice is excellent. And she has so many ways of thinking and talking about grind culture and ways through it, responses to it. Um, and some of the design exercises that she introduces in the book are just a joy to behold. Um, I, I it, it is a book that is well worth your time, and I think very related to themes that are that that matter to many of us. So seven months between it being published and you listening to it is not a long. It's not a long time, Emily. So I sometimes it takes me years to get through to it. Then I wonder, like, how on earth have I not read this book before now? And then I read all the reviews and all the stuff that I've missed and all the conversations that have been online about how wonderful things are. So, yeah, the fact that I might get to read this within a year, based on your recommendation, is fantastic. Um, Highly recommend. And, you know, I think that part of the reason I am so interested in resistance right now is, um, and we are on the the heels of the girl boss movement and seeing, um, you know, I think some, some high profile investigations into ways that this grind culture does not work for many of us. Um, and it just, I'm reading it at the right moment and I wish I'd read it sooner. Yeah, we're doing some um, work with a, a global nonprofit called We All, which is an um, economic well-being organization, network organization. Um, and just yesterday, we were having a little bit of a conversation around how um, 
well well being is pretty at odds with a lot of the kind of work culture that we're brought up to understand, um, including digital well-being. So like everything being monetized, everything like being quote unquote productive all the time, all the time. It's actually really de detrimental to us as humans. Um, and yeah, so these themes, you know, that we're going to be talking about over the next 30 or 40 minutes are, they're all very fresh in our minds. It also raises a, a question for me, Laura, about um, when we talk about productivity, we're often looking at that as a, as a short term, how much can you get done in a day and a night? I like to reframe it in terms of thinking about total lifetime value or total contributions over a lifetime. So um, if I am able to do work that engages me, where I feel like I'm contributing to a team and I have reasonable expectations of what my output is, I'm more likely to want to do that work longer. Um, and so really thinking about this over the course of the lifespan, I think is critically important. We have such short term thinking when it comes to economic productivity and how we, and how we measure that. And I would really like to see us sort of factor, especially with people living longer and factor a different set of considerations into how we think about topics like employee satisfaction, output, um, GDP, et cetera. Mm. I mean, since you say over the course of a, uh, the lifetime, I would love if you could tell us a little bit about your career path and a little bit about how you ended up at Charter and, you know, what you're doing now, what's the through line through your career? Oh, I would be happy to talk about that. Um, I am the child and grandchild of journalists. I grew up um, very much with an expectation that sustaining independent news was was really a a right um, and a obligation that that all of us have. Um, and so, st had studied journalism, had worked in arts and culture reporting for the Cape Times in South Africa, and became quite interested in how news organizations could thrive in the in the years ahead. You know, this was when we saw a major change in the in sort of print and digital advertising um, and the economics of media organizations, particularly local news, were were really changing. And um, I went and did a master's degree in learning design and technology at Stanford and got really excited about design thinking and the work of the Design Institute and the D School in huge part because of the focus of going to people where they're at, being in conversation with them, and co-designing solutions together. Not just a group of people sitting around a room in an office and thinking, oh, we know the best way forward, but really this user needs orientation has sort of guided me throughout my career. And that um, academic work took me to the New York Times, um, where I had the great privilege of being the first audience researcher embedded in the newsroom um, and getting to work with reporters and editors to understand who are the people you want to reach with this coverage who are not paying attention to it today and what can it do for them, whether that is help them prepare for a meeting or um, to guide their friends in a conversation about a topic they might not otherwise think about. Um, the In the other organizations that 
I have been fortunate to work at, including the Atlantic and, and the Membership Puzzle Project, this fascination around go to people who we've otherwise considered news consumers and find out about their habits, their behaviors, their aspirations has been incredibly useful. Um, I was leading the research practice most recently at the Atlantic, including um, through the pandemic and, and some of the Atlantic's coverage, science coverage has been absolutely phenomenal on, on this topic. Um, and we, we gained a, a new set of subscribers who had really never spent time with the Atlantic's journalism and seeing a, a, um, a magazine brand grow in that way was just absolutely fascinating. And I probably would still be there um, had the had the team from Charter not said, you know, we we really see that um, the world of work is changing. We need timely responses to it. And Charter was co-founded by Aaron Grau, who I had worked with at the Times, Kevin Delaney, um, who had been a business editor at the Wall Street Journal, co-founder of Courts, um, and now our editor-in-chief, and Jay Loff, who was also at The Atlantic. And it originally started as an email newsletter early in the pandemic to very much address, you know, workplace transformation as it related to location. Mm-hmm. And this was before the Delta and Omicron surges. And it seemed like the pandemic might be this short-lived sort of blip on the radar. We now know that, of course, that is not the case. Um, But in publishing this email newsletter called Reset Work at the time, um, Kevin Delaney started to get requests from CEOs and chief people officers who said, you know, I need a little bit more on how do I actually manage in this hugely transformative period. I started reading it and our leadership team at The Atlantic very much used it as a playbook for guiding remote teams. Um, one quick aside that I will offer here is when Doug, Laura, and I had worked together at Mozilla Foundation, it was it was a hybrid organization. And I don't think I valued at the time how far ahead these ways of working were. And we're now seeing, you know, a, a major, especially for knowledge workers, a major global shift towards these more flexible ways of working. Um, Doug, I think I think you may have something to add on this. Please well, I just wanted in. to pick up on what you said there about uh, Mozilla because I was I was pretty much fully remote at Mozilla, um, and I remember how much I appreciated the fact that there was a there was a policy of like we're all remoteies, and you had to set up meetings as if people could dial in and, and everything like that, and just how as you say how far ahead of its time that was because ten years later with helping clients think about that kind of stuff. I think, I mean, the pandemic definitely opened my eyes to how far ahead we were at the time. Um, Just the influx of um, people that we had coming to us that that were looking for skills that I didn't realize were advanced. One of the first things that we did at the co-op when the pandemic hit was we quickly wrote an email course about how to have a virtual meeting um, that's empowering and interesting. And, you know, because one of the things that we were seeing really early in the pandemic was like, you know, people were doing online meetings and just not a lot of engagement. It was 
quite a lot of boring stuff was happening. And there are just some of the skills that we learned 10, 15 years ago with this remote working stuff that I didn't actually realize were skills, I guess. I thought it was just, I don't know. I just, I thought everybody on the internet worked like this. Um, so the pandemic really opened my eyes too. Um, and this is something we'll, t- we'll talk about. I mean, we are certainly, we're on the verge of a workplace revolution. And like the agricultural and industrial and internet revolutions before this one, we're seeing that it's radically changing things, um, it's changing our physical workplaces, our relationships with our careers. And, and at Charter, we you know very much saw, oh, there was no playbook for this new world of work. And, and it, we're talking a lot about sort of where and how people work. This also relates to considerations like pay transparency, like diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, and so, so much more. Um, I joined Charter about six months ago to lead the research practice, and we're a group of social science researchers who study transformation um, and including what are the considerations that are front of mind for business leaders and for members of their staff. And we'll unpack a bit of what we're finding because it's been, it's been really rich. And I would encourage, we have a free three times a week email newsletter, charterworks.com that I really consider like some of our book briefings and our interviews are, are really meant to bridge research to practice. The idea is not just, you know, this is a space when we talk about work because it's personal and professional, everyone has an opinion. But if we look at the data, if we go back to what do we know based on patterns of human behavior, I think it can teach us a lot. Yeah, one of the, um, one of the things that I'm really interested in learning from you today is who... Um, who are you doing research with? Um, because I, I definitely see that there's um, some trends happening in, in the world of work and in, in particular in like the technology industry. Um, and I'm curious about the people that you're asking and uh, questions to and the places that you're gathering information. Are you including a wide spectrum of different um how to say, uh, different kinds of organizations. So nonprofits, cooperatives, for-profits, NGOs. Like, I'm just kind of wondering if you're across the board or if you're more focused on, like, corporate um, for-profit companies. Yeah, we absolutely look across the board. And I think including governmental organizations. um, I have really loved... The conversations I've had with some people who are almost um, entrepreneurs within their government agencies, um, and they bring a, a level of resourcefulness to their work that I find really compelling. And um, you know, we look regardless of tax status, to put it bluntly, um, we are as interested in what comes out of a really thoughtful nonprofit or co-op as we are a Fortune 500 company. Um, And one thing that I would mention is also, um, in addition to sort of organizational structure, I'm really interested in looking across industries because I think a lot of recent workplace research has been very focused on technology companies, retail. 
I want to look at manufacturing organizations. I want to look at companies that have a lot of frontline workers. Um, and so it is important when we think, you know, we are, and this is something from the, the Atlantic also, we want to make sure we're not just talking to people whose opinions on these topics are frequently solicited. Mm-hmm. And from a research perspective, it requires a, a little bit more planning. How do we go to people who have never been asked their, about their experiences on on this topic? Um, and so we're just getting started with research, research partnerships. Um, we have worked with organizations like Qualtrics, who are sort of the, the gold standard when it comes to survey based research and employee experience data. Um, And then there's a number of firms that we're interested in in collaborating with who do employee experience data collection um, at big box retailers, at hospitals, at places where I think not many researchers or not enough researchers have gone to understand considerations like um, burnout, employee satisfaction, upskilling, performance management, and so much more. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the times it seems, and that's kind of what you just said there has opened my eyes to how many times people go to, oh, how do technology companies use technology? Um, Let's have a look at how Google uses technology. And let's have a look at how Microsoft uses technology. Whereas actually that's not as an interesting question as you say is, how organizations have to use technology to do a thing which they have to achieve use technology so yeah that's that's fascinating work how do you how do you start there my wife's a user researcher for the nhs and like find getting to the people who are who are never asked the question is so difficult (laughs) like like how do you how do you do that so um First, I would love to engage a conversation with her. Um, there, I was recently speaking with the chief research officer at Feeding America, Tom Sommerfeld, and um, his organization is a, you can think of it almost as a network of food banks across the United States. And obviously, reliance on their services have increased massively over the course of the past three years. And I would also argue that... Um, the stigma, social stigma around seeking those benefits has like come to the fore in a way that is potentially really, really productive. Um, that it's something that we can talk about as a culture where it used to feel maybe shameful. Um, and I asked him this question, sort of the interaction between a volunteer at a food bank and a person seeking food assistance could feel very transactional. And it's actually not a great moment to be um, be gathering insights because it can feel it can feel broken in a lot of ways. And he Tom had this excellent philosophy about um, he said, well, just like we would pay a high tier consultancy to do work for us, when we are conducting any survey based data, we compensate people appropriately for their lived experiences that we are mindful that, you know, if we're not able to offer them anywhere from U S dollar equivalent of 10 to $25 for about 15 minutes of their time for feedback, we're, we're just as transactional as what, as what we're trying to avoid. Um, and so they have, 
They've also introduced a few pieces of their data collection that I find really fascinating. So things like um, it used to be that a volunteer would hand a person a physical piece of paper to, to fill out right there. The awkwardness of that interaction, just there was a better way to do it. And so what they now have is an invitation and an explanation of here's how we'll use your feedback. It will be collected in in aggregate. There's no way it will be tied back to you or to this interaction. So digital privacy, first and foremost. And, and also tying it back to here is how the insights, here's how what you share with us is going to, it's going to help change interactions you have with volunteers. It's going to help improve considerations about making the foods that you want available. Um, so I think connecting the meat, like the reason for asking with potential output and change they can expect to see. Um, and then the, it's, it's a very short digital survey that they're invited to participate in on their own time and in private. And he said that all of these changes really have sort of improved first their their completion rate um, and also the quality of data. So hearing insights like, oh, it would be hugely useful um, if I had more of an in-store shopping experience. I Give me more control in this situation, not just collect a bag of random foods that have been prepared for me. Um, and so I think a lot about, about that when it comes to how do we compensate people for their own experiences. And, um, you know, I am mindful that when it comes to any usability testing, sometimes we are reliant on friends and family to give us feedback, but as much as possible, trying to go beyond to people we don't know, people who are maybe unlike us or who can complicate or disprove the story that we have going about ourselves internally That's the main is, thing, isn't it? is like, really important. We're, we're kind of wired for validation and for like i am showing you this thing do you think it is cool um <laughs> we all have biases that we bring to work we're all human and so um you know and, and some of this shows up in how we conduct interviews active listening um i try to remind the teams i work with that if we're showing any kind of work in progress it's not a demo situation it really is an opportunity for us to watch and listen and learn hmm. so there's so much stuff we could kind of dive into laura is there anything you want to get into with emily in particular I think you've made some notes on our pad. We have too many notes on our pad, which makes it hard to choose which one to talk about. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I have been, Emily was kind enough to share some links with us, um, which we'll put in the show notes to some of the recent research. Um, and I was quite interested in the employee mental well-being is a top priority piece of research. Um, I thought there was lots of interesting facts that you revealed um, that I was quite surprised by. Um, that I've, for me, the number one was that like the title of the study, um, you know, that employee mental well-being is a priority for these for these companies. Um, and I was I was curious about some of the data that that you you know that you collected and that that study in particular. 
how did how are they showing that employee well-being is important to them and is a priority. What kind of changes are, you know, these, I think it was 507 different organizations. What kind of changes are they implementing to try and, you know, make people happier and um, like happier to go to work, more motivated to work? And, and also, I think this has bearings on retention. How likely are you to stay with the organization that employs you? Um, so this was based on Charter's semi-annual survey of American business leaders. So it is sort of looking domestically for us. I would love to take this study international. Um, and, you know, the I was as surprised as you were Laura to see that employee mental well-being topped the list of concerns that these business leaders have, and these are sort of um, executive leaders and their deputies, so people who are real decision makers and also have sort of power of the purse when it comes to um, what what sort of coaching resources do you offer, what sort of benefits do do you offer. Um, we are going back into field with this particular question here um, in April because we want to, you know, amidst an economic downturn or economic headwinds, we really want to understand. So you've said that's a priority. How does that show up in considerations like meeting overload? How does it show up in um, flexibility? That, that you offer in time for caregiving, um, in connecting staff with much needed mental health um, provisions. And this, as well as DEI, are two areas that, that we really hear, you know, we're, we're investing time and energy into them. How that shows up in employee experiences in the longer term is of great interest to me. And I would say there's there's one thing to note here, which is that we really are in this historic moment of increased worker self-determination. Um, you know, yes, there we hear a lot about layoffs, especially within big tech. We also know that for skilled jobs, as well as for frontline jobs, there is this sort of battle for talent that really is ongoing and that um, we, you know, we know that work over time has to change with society. And I don't mean to be dramatic here, but if we think of the civil rights movement, technological advancements, and now life after lockdown, um, we do have this chance to reset to better for more of our people. One place where I, just to come back to your question, Laura, um, one place where I do see this showing up is in employees demanding of their companies that they provide more caregiving benefits and more health benefits. And we know that mental health is health. It is part and parcel of, of that second bucket. Um, and, you know, interest, not just in what is the salary that I could expect to make in this job, but what is the entire package? What are, um, what is my total compensation look like, including what is your policy around vacation time? What is, you know, if I need to care for an elderly loved one or a child or a pet, am I going to get pushback from my manager? 
And this also, this, this sort of like, no, no, no. Think about me as a whole person who is coming to work for you also relates to all kinds of on the job considerations. Like what is your internal mobility strategy? Do I need to wait in a year or a number of years before I can raise my hand for an internal promotion or um, to move and to use and grow my skill sets in, in really important ways. The last thing I'll say on this is that um, organizations that are resourceful and creative when it comes to, okay, we have this person who is really committed to our work, but who is growing beyond the capacity of their role. We don't have an opportunity to sort of, or, or the budget to, um, to boost them title and responsibility wise. What other opportunities do we have here that they could be a great fit for with some, with some training. Hmm. And, and those organizations are, are absolutely poised to, succeed, especially in this financial moment. When I tell people that when I was a teacher, people, there was a, it was a common thing to do. We used to have like those pigeonholes, you know, like with memos and all that kind of stuff. It was that long ago. Um, But people used to put job opportunities in your pigeonhole, not because they didn't want to see you again and didn't like you, but because there's, there's a, a promotion kind of hierarchy within the the teaching sector and education. So you knew what your next step was. They were giving you an opportunity to say, have you seen this job, et cetera. Um, and that kind of maturity of a of a sector to say like, oh, your next step is probably not going to be in this organization. It's probably going to be somewhere else. Um, along with not paying people like we have in big tech so much money that they feel like they can't move or their, their perks are so great in this particular job that I have to stay here because I'm not going to get those kind of perks elsewhere. It's like not just organizational cultural maturity. It's like sectoral kind of maturity. Um, And I wonder how that kind of, I guess that's through demonstration and through your organization and the research that you do sharing those insights and people going, Oh, actually that organization over there does that. Maybe we need to start thinking about that too. And I wondered how you see, If you can see that in practice, especially after the pandemic, is that like on hyperdrive, people kind of ideas cascading throughout sectors like that? You know, it is it is interesting. And when we think about here in the U.S., um, bank collapses, this idea of um, how information spreads and the action that that people take with their resources. This is a very timely consideration. You also raise sort of. one individual's sort of um, loyalty to their field. Um, Teaching is an excellent example, I think, about healthcare also, where um, because of being historically undervalued for their really meaningful contributions, they become a great place for other industries to, to poach talent from. And that I foresee a, a real crisis if, if we lose dedicated individuals with a lot of on-the-job knowledge in those fields. You know, this conversation also makes me think about the importance of modeling and mentorship. Um, we had done a study recently with Qualtrics understanding the experiences of about 3,000 desk-based employees in the U.S., 
And I was just astounded to see how much mentorship boosted retention, that when individual mentees had the opportunity to meet regularly with someone with knowledge to offer them, and when it was supported by their organizations, they were more than they were 1.5 times as likely to stay at their current organization for over five years. And that's really important because it costs a lot for organizations to, to replace their employees, estimated at 1.5 times twice their annual salary. Um, and when I say recognition, you know, we know a lot about how companies that train their staff to mentor well, that don't just think, oh, mentors are born. People walk in with this skill. No, no, no. It can, it really is an area that can be taught. Um, organizations that formally recognize their contributions to their mentees in the form of, this is something that's included in and you know, an annual or semi-annual um, performance management review, that it's included as a factor for compensation, that um, the time that a mentor spends with their mentee is valued and protected, that, you know, this not only helps with sort of two-way skill building, both for the mentor and the mentee, but again, it keeps those mentees on staff longer. Um, coaching and sponsorship are topics I'm similarly eager to study for all the reasons that you that you point out, Doug. You know, we talk a lot about what doesn't work, and there is so much there. As we look at sort of solutions, well, what does make people more satisfied in in their work? What does get them ready to take on an ambitious next challenge? That's where I'm really eager to, to spend my research time. I think this is um, an interesting direction if we think about, you know, how how people feel when they feel like they fit. Um, so, like, I mean, this is a well-being question for me, but also, you know, I think there comes a certain point in your career or in an individual's career where they start to think about what they really want out of their working life. And it's not always a promotion and it's not always the next thing and it's not always growth and it's not always a salary. A lot of times the things that people want um, are things like autonomy or flexibility or, you know, I'm thinking of an example. I have a friend who was recently offered a promotion um, and she turned it down because she was happy in her job, period, full stop. Um, she was happy doing the kind of work that she was doing. Um, she's been doing it for a long time. She feels um, competent in her role. She's been recognized for her talent in that role. And so, you know, and she's at a place in her career where she's just like, no, I don't, I don't need something more than what I have. I feel recognized for who I am and I like what I do. And I think that that's a, sort of a, a sign of um, something that can lead to more retention is the, the sheer well-being and happiness of people finding their place within an organization that actually cares about them. I yeah. love that. It, kudos to your friend um, for for this recognition. Like that suggests a level of maturity on her part and on, on the organization's part. Two things that come immediately to mind I have a friend who talks about, um, you know, when you're thinking about making a, a career move, 
there's, there's three considerations, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And no one role is going to fulfill all those things to the same extent at the same time. But if you can get really clear as a job candidate, which of those matter to me the most right now? And what will that look like for me? That, that, those sets of considerations have always been really, really useful for me, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. The second is um, I'm excited to see, and maybe this is a longer term change. You know, it used to be we were so fascinated with this idea of a career ladder, work your way to the corner office through grind, do whatever it takes to get there, sort of this reverse pyramid. Except there's there's a big problem with that ladder metaphor, which is like <laughs> gravity. You're more likely <laughs> to go down than up. And so at Charter, we talk a lot about career passports. What does it look like to be thinking about different skills you want to gain, different experiences that you want to have? I just think it's a more holistic way of thinking about our professional contributions over the lifespan. We were talking to one of our former members of our co-op and now collaborator, Brian Mathers, who um, you'll have seen through the, the images that you drew for the Open Badges work and things. And we were, were trying to kind of come up with some different visual metaphors. And one of the ones which we came up with last week was the difference between a, a ladder and a climbing wall. Well, with a climbing wall, sometimes you have to go down or sideways or take a different route to everyone else. Um, and it just, I think he's drawing that probably as we speak. Um, to try and come up with that visual metaphor, to try and explain to people it's okay not to just go straight upwards. And I love the idea of gravity always pulling you you downwards. That's, uh, that's definitely a consideration. You know, there are systemic, really, there are these systemic forces that, um, whether that is considerations around um, gender, ethnicity, sexuality in the workplace, that really are forces that have kept so many talented people from growing their their careers and I'm excited to see that visual because I think it's a, a, an excellent way to say sometimes you need to take a pause sometimes the best move is actually a lateral one I think it's really interesting um like as a as a man you're supposed to always be like driving onwards and providing for your family and all these kind of gender norms and stuff and I remember I was only half joking when I first said it. I must have been late 30s. And I said to my wife and friends, like, I've achieved all I want to do now. The rest is just, like, me enjoying the ride kind of thing. But the number of men who I've spoken to since the pandemic who have almost used those exact words of, like, I've done what I need to do now. And now, like, the rest of it is just me deciding how I want to spend the rest of my time. Like, doing all of that. My dad used to, it's really inappropriate, like, talk about thrusting like you're going almost like going up and then then the rest of it is is orbit to kind of mix all my metaphors together um i think it's interesting that people are willing to use that language explicitly that they've achieved all they want to achieve in terms of external success and the rest of it is what matters to them internally i wonder you know it's interesting we're talking about this in terms of the language of achievement I think about it in terms of inquiry. Like, what is it that I want to know? What is it that I want to learn over the course of my career is a totally different orientation that I think we're just now able to have in, in more thoughtful ways. Mm -hmm. 
So kind of building on the, the mentorship thing, um, I really like the idea. So how, if someone wanted to get started with mentorship, wanted to be a mentor or wanted to find a mentor, I see people on LinkedIn say like, oh, you know, I'm, op- I'm open to mentoring people or I'd love to find a mentor or whatever. Um, how would organizations get started with that? How, like, do they need to start an official program? Like if you informally wanted to find a, a mentor or a mentee, how would you go about doing that? Are there yeah. ways in which you found kind of really work? So casual mentorship absolutely has benefits. There's also a key limitation, which is it really relies on a mentee's ability to network effectively internally. And we think a great deal about how do you make the implicit explicit? So if there are power structures to know about, if there are individuals who are real leaders in their space, how can that be made more transparent to a person who is new to an organization, who is new to their function, um, who historically has been sort of kept out of that, being able to being able to see those pathways? So I think this is an area, I know this is an area where formal mentorships that start on an employee's first day are really powerful. Um, and ones that that work really well, there's a a very clear goal-setting conversation at the beginning. What do you know and what do you want to know? And by the way, this mentorship goes two ways. Again, it's like a ladder. There's only so much that a mentor can offer, can, can bestow upon their mentee. I've been so encouraged by examples where mentors say, this gave me a completely new way of thinking about about either a skill set that I didn't have or um, a consideration in in our organization that I had just never seen it through that lens before. So I think it's incredibly skill building and empathy inducing. Like a um, reverse reverse mentorship kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. The I also think um, you know we have seen examples, and a lot of these are from within the manufacturing space where. The mentee, after a period of time, is given the opportunity to mentor someone else. And this makes all the sense in the world from what we know about learning theory of um, giving people skills that they can then impart on others is, is sort of the world's best way to embed that, that knowledge. There's one other thing that I would mention around formal mentorship as it relates to um, sort of success regularity of those conversations matters more than other factors. And this is really exciting, actually, because we were talking about hybrid work at the beginning. And the, I think there is this longstanding idea that, you know, there really are um, reasons we need to get everyone back into the office. And one of them is, is mentorship. And that actually doesn't bear out in our data. We see that frequency of meetings matters so much more than where they happen. So maybe you meet in person if if that's an option available to you at the start of the relationship, um, just to get to know each other a bit. But then if you can keep meeting weekly and that happens on the phone, if that happens 
on video if that happens in person, as long as you're sort of checking in, this is what I'm trying to do. How do I get there? How do I overcome this challenge that I have? And that it's, it's hard to understate how much that regularity and consistency matters more than other sort of that's that's how you get close to people that's how you get close to people isn't it it's interesting even on our row of houses um i feel a lot close to my neighbors in the spring through the summer because we're outside together more i live in the northeast of england it's cold in winter and you go between your car and your house you never see anybody so you feel closer the more interactions you have with someone so that would totally yeah that would totally make sense now, there, there is one rub here, which we see in management, and that's proximity bias. That is the idea that um, the person who is geographically closest to me or who I see most in person is the right person for the job. Mm. And so we have coached a lot of executives around sort of over acknowledging and overcoming that bias. And we'll hear it in sort of throwaway comments. You know, everyone on my team is great. I find that the person who's most committed is the one who comes in to the office several days a week. That's proximity bias. And when we become aware of it and we can say, you know what, how are we making sure that plum, plum assignments are equally distributed so that everyone has, has a chance, not just the person who I have the benefit of getting to see most regularly. Again, we all have biases. It's being aware of them and working collaboratively through them that, that really matters. Can I say one other thing on hybrid work? You can say whatever you want, Emily. (laughs) Look at us. We're just like hanging on your every word. Keep talking. (laughs) And, you know, hybrid work when it's done right, can offer the benefits of remote working. And, and we all have experienced these. Flexibility, productivity, reduced operating costs to our employers, increased employee satisfaction with the strengths of traditional co-located work, like collaboration and coordination and networking. This is why at Mozilla Foundation, it was so valuable that we would come together in person several times a year. And we would use that for what it was best for considerations like um, onboarding, like um, socializing, like volunteering together. And what those really valuable in-person days are not good, are not best for is taking different video calls side by side. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Co-location. Like that is, um, as Erica Kesman, an author who we frequently work with says, like that is, working side by side that's not worth the commute yes right yeah definitely definitely especially when the commute is flying to a different country and then everyone is <laughs> is uh doing things side by side that they could have been doing on the end of a, a zoom call or whatever mm-hmm. interesting that's right yeah. i i am encouraged by seeing organizations take their off sites much more seriously than they had in years past. So um, there is an organization called Greenhouse Software. And what they do is they actually did away with their San Francisco office over about the past 18 months. But they said, we are going to put those resources into co-locating team offsites. Mm -hmm. So um, how do we make sure that Laura and Doug, who might work on completely different disciplines, have 
proximity to one another um, and and do have the opportunities for some of the, the serendipitous conversations. Um, because those those connections are important and frankly they're just fun to they're fun to have. Yeah, we yeah, just sure. um, actually we are we are open. We just had our first uh, meetup in January um, since before the pandemic. So we went three years. And we were, the co-op was quite, um, we had some stuff going on during the pandemic. We were really leaning into helping people, um, you know, start to use technology in different ways. Some of humane digital well-being things um, had a lot of projects and we worked together, saw each other all the time. Um, but we hadn't actually been in the same room uh, for three years. And we, in January of this year, we saw each other again in, in real life. I forgot that Doug is tall. Um, I forgot that you're small. Um, so, but the interesting thing for me is that I met Anna in person for the first time, was reminded about how much of a, a dynamo small person Laura is. Um, but also when I worked at JISC in higher education before I started Mozilla, I remember going back to the, the mentorship and meeting online and offline. Like it seemed to me that projects that which started together and met in person and had the full spectrum 3D humanness kind of thing and then met online seemed to do even better than the ones who met online, then met in person, then met online at the end of it. There's something about meeting in person, like which is really important, which we shouldn't get away from, but I think it's fetishized a little bit too much sometimes. So yeah, trying you to get that balance is, is important. You said it perfectly. And I think planning, you know, it's a privilege, especially when you have an international team to be able to bring people together. I would encourage it. Um, and, you know, at Charter, we're really thoughtful when we have an opportunity to bring our team together from across the U.S. for two days. We set it up so there are different opportunities for knowledge sharing and for people to have expertise beyond or to show their expertise beyond their day job. So that can be things like um, whoever's local to the place that we're meeting, taking people on neighborhood tours and showing them their version of the city. Um, volunteering together cannot stress the importance of that, not only for the, the output of it, but also for working together on a challenge that is not the, is not the one that you face sort of day to day. Um, and then socializing, you know, for so often, socializing at work really privileged people who did not have caregiving oper caregiving mm -hmm. commitments outside the office. So that looks like happy hours after work. Okay, automatically that privileges people who um, can stay late, who can pay for those drinks, who drink. Um, yeah. And I am enthusiastic that it, we are entering a new, more considerate way of working that is not maybe so focused around alcohol as our as our means of gathering. Mm. And it's it, when you said about having someone showing them around their hometown. One of our clients has just kind of instituted a new policy, um, kind of by necessity, but then by design as well, where one of their employees doesn't really like traveling, so they're going to do all of they're going to all meet together in his hometown. Um, so he doesn't have to go anywhere. And then he's going to show around and everyone else gets to move in and kind of meet together and stuff. And then who knows what happens next time. But there's so much flexibility you can have, um, as you've shown during this conversation, Emily, like when you, you 
start just questioning little things around the edges and then there's like a domino effect of like oh why do we do things like that and the pandemic is like a catalyst for for all of those changes we say at charter that you know we're a group of people who are impatient for change that um we are unsatisfied with the status quo around how we work and um you know often people will say oh but training online that's so difficult like i just i wait for those sort of um moments of serendipity and and for someone to just internalize how we work by being in close in close space with one another it's not that this work is impossible it just requires a little bit more planning and curiosity about what are the tools that are best going to serve your team's needs at the moment. Well, I certainly think that Charter is um, putting some really interesting insights into the world. And um, it's so nice to talk to you again. I was just thinking that we're at the 52-minute mark. So uh, maybe we want to have you back on a future episode. And or we could just meet up. Uh, online and say hi. It's so nice to connect with you again. And um, I'm really, I want to just keep talking to you and pick your brain some more. Um, so we should figure out how we can keep the conversation alive instead of waiting 10 years and then seeing each other in a newsletter. I I remain committed to that. I love that. And um, I would be curious also and ask that I have is questions that your listeners have about workplaces and how do we make them better places to be um, so that workers can thrive? I am all ears. My email is emily at charterworks.com. Great. So um, people can find out more about charter at charterworks.com about you personally and your fascinating career trajectory. Um, you have a website as well. Do you want to tell people that? Sure. It's Emily Goligoski, G-O-L-I-G-O-S-K-I.com. And we will include that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Be well. Thanks, Emily.